The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We'll be settling in. Nice to see everybody tonight. Thanks for coming out. So we're taking these next couple months to look at the Buddha's teachings on path. And uh, it's just such an important thing. And, you know, being raised in culture, then our whole sense of what to do with this human life, of course, that's conditioned in by culture, by our parents and by our friends and by the wider culture, our values. And then given that we're being conditioned and our minds reflect that conditioning, our desires, the ways, the choices that we make, then we get a world like this, right? Whether you think it's characterized by consumerism or greed or whatever, however you might describe it. But there's a lot of suffering, clearly. And uh, and. <coughs> When people have enough privilege, enough space in their life to be reflective, we begin to recognize it's not working. We keep getting swept along like, yeah, but I still need the new iPhone or I still need, you know. But we do, we can, you know. It isn't that rare for human beings to have some sort of wise sense like, what does this all mean or where does this all lead? Or how could this lead to some satis- you know, long-lasting satisfaction release in my heart? And we're just suspicious. We start to be curious. Is there another way? Could there be another way? What would that other way be? And we might bump into these teachings. And uh, as I've been talking about this week and just reflecting on path, the Buddha had a real powerful innovation that initially might strike people as being a little off or a little morbid, but he put the experience of suffering front and center as if to say, isn't it interesting that even when things are going well in our lives, there is this underlying anxiety or unease. If we look, we tend not to look, but if we look, well, notice that there's this underlying ease. And that's just curious, like, okay, well, let me highlight that when there's happiness, I'm not at ease. I want it to last. I want more of it. When there's unhappiness, I'm not at ease. When it's neutral or boring, I'm not at ease. Oh, well, that's actually interesting. Because I spend a lot of my time as a human being, you know, orienting around my likes and getting rid of my dislikes. But it doesn't, when I really look at it, I mean, clearly I do prefer having my likes and not having my dislikes, right? But that underlying anxiety continues, even, you know, when things are going relatively well. There is a basic uncertainty, unsatisfactoriness, anxiety, uneasiness that's there. And so what we do is we highlight that, well, that's interesting. Let me 
in a way, it's an ongoing meditation object. In Buddhism, as a lot of you know, we call it dukkha. And dukkha comes evidently from the term of a wheel that's out of true or an axle and wheel that's out of true that isn't working very well. So there's something like in how I'm relating, how I'm showing up, how I'm viewing things. There's something a little off. And how do I know? Because there's an underlying uneasiness, an underlying unsatisfactoriness that just, in a way, haunts my heart and mind all the time. But I have to look because, you know, when I'm watching a good TV show, I don't notice it because I'm absorbed in that. Or when I'm, you know, chatting with my friend, I don't notice it because I'm absorbed in the conversation when I'm cooking. Right? So we get absorbed in all kinds of things and we get a temporary break. It's not that the haunting has gone away, the uneasiness has gone away, but we're momentarily for a period of time forgetful, unaware of that underlying anxiety or uneasiness. And then when we settle back, we might notice it again. So part of our training, right, we're training the mind to keep that in view, keep the uneasiness in view, and not think of it as being morbid or a mistake or like, oh, poor me, there's this uneasiness. No, it's really about, well, whatever life this is, I want to be connected. I want to have an authentic, honest, intimate, even fearless connection with my life. Like, what is the underlying feeling here in my heart, in my gut, my mind? Because it turns out to be a really useful, you could say, barometer. Giving me, giving the mind, giving wisdom in the mind feedback. Oh, this is how that uneasiness gets set in motion. This is how that dukkha, that underlying uneasiness resolves itself. By keeping it in mind, we begin slowly, gradually over time, because it's subtle, right? But we begin to understand, well, what's feeding that tendency to be uneasy, to be anxious, to be restless, to be lonely, to be, you know, all the different expressions of that underlying anxiety. It's different for the kind of surface expression may be a little different. Some people, that more raw existential uneasiness feels like fear. Other people, more like anxiety. Other people, more like a sense of lack or deep longing, loneliness. So it can have a, you know, we might think it's different, but when we get right into the essence, it's an uneasiness, an unsettledness. And when we keep it, when we realize this is relevant, this uneasiness of the heart is relevant. It's a teacher, in a sense. It's a spiritual teacher. And as I keep it in mind, as I get interested in it, this subtle uneasiness in the heart, as I keep it in mind, then I begin to be able to discern like when I'm relating, like when I'm really caught up in consumerism. Oh, yeah, looking through the catalog or whatever it might be, we might notice because there's that thread of awareness of how the heart's doing, that underlying feeling in the heart, oh, this is amping up that subtle uneasiness in the heart. Oh, interesting. And then we might notice other ways of relating, other times when 
as we're tracking how the heart's doing, we see that that uneasiness is resolving or releasing or lighter, less oppressive. Oh, that's interesting too. That's how we find a way. It's not like someone hands us a map. This is how you become really peaceful, really wise and kind, really fully free and released. It's more like this, it's a kind of earthy wisdom, like where we discover, oh my God, there's a feedback mechanism right here. It's called the sensitive heart. But our heart has to be cleaned up because we're so distracted, so superficial, so, you know, the heart-mind is so drawn into things that ultimately aren't that important that we haven't sort of clarified this very powerful feedback system that's available, the sensitive heart. That's why in, in the Buddhist teachings there's such a big deal around samadhi, or basically cultivating a stable, calm, and sensitive heart. And the thing about becoming more calm and sensitive, it makes unskillfulness intolerable. Like, you know, those places in our lives that we've been wanting to clean up forever. Like, we know we're not really behaving skillfully. We know we shouldn't be doing that. But there we go. We do it again. We do it again. We stay up too late. We act out in this way. We cheat. You know, most of us probably not in terrible ways. But take advantage of our power, you know, in little places, whatever that might be. And we kind of know we shouldn't. But because we're not really tracking what that so-called unskillful behavior, what sort of seeds are being planted, because we're superficial, distracted, not that sensitive, not honoring the sensitivity, we keep doing what isn't so skillful to do. So the more sensitive we become, it's really hard to be gossiping about someone, putting someone down, Because it feels like something in the heart. It feels like something we shouldn't be doing, right? It's heavy. It's like in the tradition, you know, the word that gets translated, the words that get translated, it's heavy karma or sometimes dark karma as opposed to light karma, right? The actual impression that's being left in the heart mind stream is heavy. Why would I want that heaviness? What's another way of relating that doesn't leave that kind of heavy trace? And that's how we find our way. So in this way, it's really what we're up to is it's a training. It isn't, you know, we're just not here to calm down. We're cultivating that calm and sensitivity so we can find our way in life through all the complexity of our relationships and the ambiguity, confusion of the, it's like, how do we know? how to navigate consumerism. And we can't, it's like it's not an option to not buy anything as a human being. So what do we do? How do we raise kids? How do we deal with our sexuality? Right? We have to really show up. So what's going to guide us? Well, our sensitive heart. So in this way, morality in Buddhism doesn't exist outside of our own mind and heart. Like what makes something skillful and unskillful is known here in the heart by the by the impression or the 
seed, like what's left over. That is the... Now, we can sometimes sense and we watch a good friend doing whatever they're doing, acting in the way they're acting. And of course, we can sometimes sense, oh yeah, that's not so good what they're doing. They're probably causing themselves harm, setting harm, suffering in motion in their own life and probably, maybe, in the lives of those around them, right? But we won't know for sure unless we can, you know, we're that person who is sensing what's getting left in their heart. That way, if somebody does something unskillfully and nobody knows it, well, that heart knows it. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't get caught. If you do something beautiful and skillful and nobody knows you did it, it doesn't matter because the heart is, is, in a sense, carrying the impression of that skillful those skillful words, that skillful action, those skillful thoughts, whatever it was, the heart knows. Because this heart, you know, when we say it's sometimes better to call it the mind and heart, to call it a mind stream or heart stream, right? It's a flow. And that flow, what makes up that flow are all the impressions that have been left behind. So the flow right now of our mind, of our heart, where did that flow, whatever your heart-mind flow is like right now, what you're actually experiencing as the flow of emotion, the flow of mental activity, thoughts, right? Whatever that is, where did it come from? What well, came from the past? Oh, it's the, this mind, this flow of the mind-heart right now is the cumulative expression of everything that's been laid down in the past. What else would it be the result of? Like where else would this mind, this heart, whatever is moving right here as my mind and heart, where else would it have arisen from if not from everything that's been laid down in the past? So when we act skillfully or unskillfully or in a mixed way, that impression right, is laid down so that the mind that flows forward into the next moment, into the next moment, it is that flow, that mind stream is expressing what was laid down. So initially it's a real sense of responsibility. So I've been talking about the path, you know, uh, over the last almost a month now, Eightfold Path, but we talk about it in three sections. We have the wisdom section, the relational section, morality section, that's the relational, and then the more uh, ecosystem of the heart, taking care of the mind and heart, right? balancing the mind, stabilizing the mind. Wisdom, of course, is related to the mind, but it's the more subtle part of the mind of view and intention. And then you know, the more gross activity of mind is really what we talk about in terms of samadhi. So we have the wisdom... We have the action, interaction, relational, and we have the mind part of the path. And so <clears throat> initially the wisdom, when we don't have a lot of wisdom, but we're not just a confused human being bouncing around, getting pushed around by our habit energies, we, we become sort of on a path. Then the first part of the path is as a human being we realize, I don't know much, but I know it matters. 
right? So I've been talking about that in the past, so you can go back and listen to some of those talks online if you want. You know, that initial part of wisdom where we don't know much, but we know who I am, how I am, how I'm relating, how I'm taking care of my mind and heart, it matters. I don't know necessarily know how to take care of it, but I know it matters. Like I know I can take care of it in ways that are cause me and others harm. So if I don't do that, that's got to be better. <laughs> right? Like if I cease relating, acting, thinking in ways that cause me and others harm, that has to be good. Right? So one way to think about skillfulness being skillful, being wholesome, being helpful, is the cessation of being unskillful. When the mind, when habit, when unskillful habits are not picked up, not acted out, that may be what we mean by being skillful. And you know, often in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha talks about the positive end as the cessation of the negative. Because it actually, it's a more functional definition. Like, just give an example of peace. Because I could romanticize what a spiritual teacher might mean by peace. But it's a way, a more operational, more useful definition to say, realizing a mind without agitation. Right? So, do you know what agitation's like in our mind? Yeah, I know that experience. Not that. That's peace. See, it's really much more functional. But if I just say, oh, you know, there's this uh, possibility of real peace, it's beautiful, a lot of flowers. You know, we, we'll have a mental idea of it and we'll cling to the idea. But it won't be very helpful. It will be romantic, it will be idealistic. It will set up like a clinging to an idea and we'll try to imitate it. And it will really set us off in the wrong direction. But if we say, yeah, there's, there's a mind with agitation and there's a mind free of agitation. There's a mind that's really burdened or weighed down by attachment and there's a mind that, has, that is more and more free of all grasping and attachment. See, it makes it more functional. There's a mind full of ill will and fear and anger. And there's a mind of love. But instead of calling it love, we'd say there's a mind free of aversion. A heart mind operating in this world where no aversion, no ill will, no fear is detected. See, so it's a, it's a more useful, like to think about the difference between skillful and unskillful. And that's really what we're learning. learning. So once we know it matters, we start paying attention to like, well, what is skillful and unskillful? We're trying to comprehend, we're trying to read, or you could even say, I'm trying to connect the dots. So with mindfulness and with some continuity of present moment awareness, mindfulness, I'm trying to connect the dots. Like when I'm relating in this way with fear or with ill will, what sort of heart does that set in motion? I mean, that's, that just can stop us in the tracks. Imagine if today or the last week, in a regular way, you were simply asking silently in your own mind, just in a very kind, considerate way, like because you care about your life, you're just asking yourself, 
every once in a while, what sort of heart are you setting in motion right now? So, you know, you're at home, no one's around, and you're eating like a, you know, wild animal. And, and this kind, non-judging voice just sort of pops in. What sort of mind, what sort of life is getting set in motion right now? Right? Or you're fuming about somebody who cut you off on the freeway or a friend who didn't follow through on something they said they were going to follow through, and you're just, what sort of mind is getting set in motion right now? Who am I becoming when the mind is doing what it's doing right now, relating in the way it's relating right now, spinning in the way it's spinning? What kind of person am I becoming? What's getting set in motion? It would stop us in our tracks. We would become a wise person pretty fast. So the missing thing is this view part. So this is the more subtle part of wisdom, that it's just the beginning. It matters, and then knowing it matters sets in motion a kind of vigilance, attention to motivation. Right? I'm noticing like when I'm motivated in this way, when I'm I have these intentions or relating in this way, what gets set in motion. And then that helps us sort of in the more gross part, like what I'm actually thinking or saying when I'm talking to you or being with you, how I'm earning my living, how I'm surviving, you know, as a beast who's got to earn a living or somehow feed myself, clothe myself, have shelter, have some kind of way to contribute and be socially connected because we're social beings, social beasts. So that's that growth. So that then flows out of the wisdom piece, the morality piece, like how I'm acting in the world starts with it matters and I'm starting to pay attention to how it matters. So I'm be beginning to discern what's skillful and unskillful by what sort of impression is left in my heart. And then, you know, those morality rules like don't steal, don't hit, you know, don't use your power to act out your sexual desires, don't intoxicate the mind in ways that allow you to be careless where you then have a lot of regret and guilt because you were unaware, you were inebriated and did things that you wouldn't otherwise have done. Watch your words because they're impactful. So we start to get vigilant about these just ordinary ways of how I'm relating to other people and other beings because we know it matters and we're beginning to discern how it matters. Like, oh, how kindness sort of works and how ill will doesn't. Oh, having a generous heart or a non-stingy heart really helps, and having a stingy heart, a tight heart, doesn't. How being really committed to moving in the direction of non-harming really supports a sense of safety in the world. For me, let alone for the ones around me, a sense of safety in the world, but justifying aggression and violence and harming that's emotion fear. You know, if I'm taking advantage, if I'm justifying harming others, I feel a little insecure. 
But if I've been really careful of care about not harming, not that as a human being or any living being we can completely avoid harming others. I don't think that's possible. But we can deeply value not harming others. And, and notice what that sets in motion. So the Buddha kind of gives us some, like, from his study of his own mind, when he realized it mattered and then really paid attention, he distills what he came to understand. Kindness versus ill will. Generosity or non-stinginess, contentment versus discontent and stinginess and greed. Non-harming, compassion, tenderness about like there's so much suffering, why would I want to add to it for myself or for anybody? Versus being neglectful, it doesn't matter. I mean, everything matters. What we do with the spiders in our house it matters, and it doesn't matter from some like because Santa Claus is watching us. It matters because when you do something to a spider, when you've been purposefully neglectful and you vacuum it up or you squash it or whatever you do, and I'm not being judgmental, notice what impression is left in your heart. Just be honest. It's not about like what you should do or shouldn't do. What we should do is take advantage that we have a sensitive heart and let it help us find our way toward being a happier human being, right? Because it matters. And to just ignorantly assume it doesn't matter, like, oh, I know it's okay to harm this creature. Well, why don't I find out, you know? Like, really pay attention. I, w- I noticed, I couldn't believe it, there was an ant. You know, I mean, we get a lot of ants in our house, but usually in the spring early summer, but there it was in the kitchen sink. I didn't know what to, you know, I wasn't going to kill it, I know that much, (laughs) but you know, it's, you know, do we just let it go, and we've had a serious ant problem in our house, and so the strategy has always been, you know, we catch the ants and we bring them outside, and uh, I mean, when we have the time, we do that, and so, but it's winter, is that okay? And I did, but I didn't feel that good about bringing it outside. You know, if it was 35 degrees, I might have been okay. But it's sort of like, but but the thing is, I'm honest. Like, I didn't tell myself a story. I actually noticed what it was like to take the glass that had the ant on, bring it outside, release it out there. You know, I noticed it didn't feel good. And I'm not saying it isn't complex. It's very complex. I'm not telling you what to do with the bugs in your house. It's just an example. But I am telling you that why wouldn't we want to know what the impression that's left here? Why wouldn't we want to know? So you say something, you know, your mom or dad, and you you have a complicated relationship with your parent or an old friend or a lover or whatever it might be. Why don't we want to know what's left over after the conversation? So, you know, we want to get in the habit. How's the heart? What's left over? How did that feel? What's the, uh, what's the leftover feeling? Did that, does it have the feeling of being like, oh yeah, I really did do the best I could do. It wasn't perfect, but the heart feels pretty clean, pretty light. No, it doesn't feel good. 
well, let me see. Because you want to immediately forgive yourself. You want to immediately make peace with what's ever left over. It's not about noticing that there's something heavy left over and then adding more heaviness by beating yourself up. Why would we do that? It's noticing there's something heavy, understanding, yeah, it's not easy being a human being. It's easy to make mistakes and act in ways that harm myself and others. And why wouldn't I want to learn from it? So at this point, the best thing to do is to learn from our so-called <coughs> moral lapses, you know, our mistakes. Oh yeah, that, that didn't feel so clean. That feels a little bit heavy. There's some remorse there. I really like this idea that, you know, those places where we've made mistakes and there's some remorse, it's almost like we want it to be a beautiful temple to our human ignorance. Like, I want to feel that remorse. It's like this beautiful temple that says, honey, don't do that again. Right? We don't want to forget. Why would we want to forget like that that's not the way? Oh, when I act out with my partner in that way, then there's this feeling like this. Oh, yeah. Don't act out that way. And so the pain of remorse, we turn into this beautiful wisdom that says, that way doesn't work, honey. That way doesn't work. So then going forward is that very earthy wisdom. The Buddha calls this wisdom, this sort of initial spiritual wisdom, as the great guardians of the world. Like this, it's basically this emotional system that in a way warns us like, oh yeah, when I'm around this person, this tendency in my personality gets triggered. I do this, you know, like let's say it's a really attractive person and I act out in this way or a really person that pushes your buttons, you know, like often what pushes our buttons is there's some characteristic in this person's personality that reminds us something in us that we don't like, right? Isn't that often the case? So let's say that's happening. But now it's like a warning system because we've been paying attention and we know this person's proximate. We feel it. Oh, and it's like the nice mindfulness bell goes off. Honey, be careful because there will be this habit energy to act in this way which will lay down some heaviness in your heart which won't feel good. So be careful for your own well-being, for the well-being of others. Be awake. Know the difference between what helps and what doesn't help, what's skillful. And, and you know, we can even prompt, is this way I'm showing up right now, this way I'm thinking, this way I'm imagining, is it helpful? What kind of heart, mind, life is this setting in motion? Is that the kind of heart, mind, life I want to be living through? No. Or yeah, 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 this feels right. So that's how, you know, wherever we are with wisdom, knowing that it matters how the mind is relating, and wherever we are with the sort of distillation of that wisdom where we're beginning to sense and to what's skillful and unskillful, then we bring it into this more ordinary, concrete part of life of actually having a relationship or an interaction with a human being or just life generally, taking care of our body, taking care of our livelihood, finding our way through life. We're sort of bringing this, this subtle part of wisdom that knows, hey, it matters. And I think it matters like this, like I'm beginning to trust kindness versus ill will. 
or I'm beginning to trust non-stinginess, contentment, and uh, generosity as opposed to stinginess and greed. I'm beginning to trust this deep valuing of non-harming as opposed to a more careless like, well, too bad for them. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I happen to be on top. I don't really, I'm, I, I don't really have the bandwidth to care that you're suffering because I'm really just taking care of myself. And we feel that way a lot. It's like, yeah, I know people are suffering, but it is a dog-eat-dog world. And I don't really know what to do with all of your suffering. So I'm going to imagine the harm and I, that you experience that it's not my business. And I'm going to pretend I'm not complicit in it, you know, like in these economic systems and these biases like racism and sexism and class and all these ways that people and other beings, you know, animals, farm animals, are taken advantage of in ways. Because it's convenient. But when we start to pay attention to our sensitive heart, there's no escaping that it matters. So this commitment to non-harming initially seems to make it so much more complex that we have to care about everything. But actually, ultimately, it's so much lighter. Because to tell ourselves the the lie that it doesn't matter really is oppressive. Because it does matter. I mean, and it's not like it matters because Santa Claus tells us or God tells us it matters. It matters when we notice when we get sensitive, we realize it matters. Like when we make somebody else an other, like outside of our circle, that ma- where we think it matters, those who are close to me, but those who belong to my group or whatever, and those others don't matter. We, that disconnection feels like something right here in our heart, but it's subtle, so we're normally not sensitive enough to realize it. And this is the thing, this, it changes our life. Like once we go down a spiritual path, we realize that everything matters. We start to study how it matters. We bring that, you know, whatever we're learning into the ordinary relationships, how we shop, how we interact at work, how we earn our living. It's like we just have so much more ambig- uh, ambiguity and complexity, but it starts to feel more real because we're not living with these fixed ideas that it doesn't matter. So we're more, we have every incentive now to be sensitive and to pay attention and to listen and to be humble. And so then we really start to value the mind because we want to be sensitive. Like, I know it matters how I relate to my partner, my spouse, but I don't really know what I should say to them when I go home tonight. But I know it matters. And I know if I'm not skillful, it will be a weight in my heart and probably in her heart, right? So I know I need the mind, a sensitive, balanced mind. So that's the third part. So we have the wisdom part. We have the sort of interactional, interrelational part, what we call normally morality, right? Ethical conduct. I like the word integrity of our actions. And now we have the third part, which is really the mind. And this is like, where we realize there's no way to find my way toward freedom, toward real happiness, if I, if I don't deeply value sensitivity. 
It's the only thing that will save me. I need this balanced, non-judging, unflappable awareness, sensitive awareness, both the breadth of awareness that can comprehend cause and effect, but also the subtlety, so I'm not just stuck on the surface. And see then, <coughs> what that stability of mind, so this word you, a lot of you know is samadhi. And it's about wise, making an effort to stabilize awareness, really understanding how to be awareness of the activity of the body and mind and how to really let it settle. And the way we let it settle, like, and we'll spend a couple of weeks talking about samadhi as we continue discussing path, it's understanding the pleasure of settledness, of calm and clarity. It feels good when the mind is collected and the same way it doesn't feel good when the mind is scattered, right? And by knowing what it feels like to be settled, we can train the mind in the direction of being more calm, more clear, more balanced. And then that sensitivity, that stability, just makes it more clear that it matters. So the wisdom deepens. And how it matters, we clarify what's skillful and unskillful. And then that sensitivity helps me navigate my relationships. And then because I'm better in my this outside part of my life, how I'm getting along, then the work of samadhi, like when we're sitting or when we're training the mind to be stable, it gets easier because we're not acting out in the world as much and feeling all the guilt when we're being unskillful. So then we have better sets. We have more sensitivity, more stability, and it just feeds. That's the engine of awakening. We start with wherever, whatever helps us get to this first step, that life matters, how I'm relating matters. We start to pay attention to our relationships. That settles things down a little. We realize, I want to be sensitive, so we train the mind to be sensitive. That sensitivity causes us to realize it really matters. <laughs> I thought it mattered, but now I know it really matters. So we pay attention more. We bring that sensitivity, wanting to be skillful, avoid unskillfulness into our relationships. Our life settles down more. We have more concentration, more samadhi, more settledness, more wisdom, more skill in our relationships, even more settledness, more stability of awareness, more wisdom that it matters and how it matters. It just keeps going and going until the wisdom really matures that the deepest way to be a skillful moral human being is to abandon attachment. And that's so interesting because initially you couldn't do, we couldn't do this. Like if you just took someone off of the street, you know, who's acting out unskillfully like all of us do, right? And you said, hey, the way to total freedom is to not get attached. Well, you know, they might just hit someone. Well, that happens sometimes. I'm not attached. You know, taking what I want. But when someone is already in a very refined, sensitive place, and they're already hyper vigilant about not harming, about being kind, the value of being kind and generous, then the last thing that needs to get teased out, like if you really want to perfect wisdom, action in the world, settledness, sensitivity of the heart, you drop attachment at the end. So that this engine of awakening 
the last unnecessary weight is the mind personalizing, I'm the one who's waking up. Initially, we need that identification with me being on the path. But in the end, that's that deeper teaching that a lot of us have, you know, just from your own study, you've referred to, you know, in the Buddhist tradition about the teaching on the impersonal or anattas, the Pali word, the not-self. But it really comes at the end, toward the end of the path, where we really got a sense of this engine, where we realize, just from a conventional point of view, there's me, and I know it matters. So I'm going to pay attention, get the difference between what's skillful and unskillful, and then bring that into my relationships with everything, the world, individuals, lovers, people I hate, because I know it matters. And because it matters, and because I'm bringing it into the world, things settle down a little bit, and I know I need more sensitivity. So I work with my mind. I sit, for example, and I cultivate samadhi so that I have more sensitivity that it matters, more sensitivity about skillful and unskillful, more sensitivity about whether this interaction is skillful or not, this way of earning a living is skillful or not, more deeply valuing sensitivity. So I work with my mind even more to have more samadhi, more settledness. That's the engine that we're looking for. And I'm <coughs> guessing that some of you have your own thoughts, experiences to report about your own path and how that looks and my, how it might relate to what I said tonight. And as I mentioned, we'll come back to this, but time for questions. We ask people to stay all the way to the end, but we'll end right at nine. And it's just part of the etiquette to stay for the discussion time. And it's just nice to hear from folks. So what comes to mind? Um, Tom is recording. Tom's our leader. He runs the large group of people that record the talks and get them online. It's really a great service. I think there's like, I think it's like 15,000 uh, uh, talks are downloaded every month from Common Ground uh, through dharmaseed.org. So it's really a great service. Not just people in the metro, but all around, you know, have started to check out uh, the talks that are given here at the center. So we do record uh, often, so keep that in mind if you want to share. Point the mic just like this so we can hear you. Anybody want to start us off? What have you been learning in your life? Yeah, please, you want to pass it back? Right there. First row of chairs. Thank you. Oh. I'm not sure if this, is that on? I can't tell. Yeah, well, it's on. Okay. Just keep talking. All right. Um, you talked at the beginning about this uh, underlying sense of uneasiness or anxiety is I'm kind of wondering about bigger anxieties that a person might feel. I'm wondering, are all anxieties of the same nature? Are they all connected? So would a large anxiety that you might feel be just an amplification of that underlying anxiety or is it a completely different thing? And can it also be used as, you know, for the, uh, keeping the anxiety, you know, front of mind to help be a guide, to be a teacher, or is it, or a big anxiety is just a completely different thing? Well, it will look like a bigger thing in the sense that it will look tied to a particular thing that's going on. So by when life is a little bit more smooth and there's not a saber-toothed tiger hunting us down or job insecurity or a breakup of a relationship that might trigger kind of a big anxiety for us. But when things are more settled, then that remaining uneasiness in the heart is really nice to 
to identify, to sense. Because then we realize, like you're suggesting, that the bigger anxieties are just a kind of more concrete um, expression of an underlying insecurity, vulnerability, uncertainty, uneasiness that is just really there in life. And so you may, because then we don't lie to ourselves. Well, when I figure out my, my financial situation, then I'll be fine. Or when I find another partner, then I'll be fine. We realize, yeah, I'm going to find another partner maybe, or I'm going to figure out my livelihood. But I'm not going to pretend that insecurity goes away. It just gets more workable. So it's totally appropriate for us humans to figure out, you know, like survival, just to call it something simple, to figure out our survival needs. But then not to sort of kick back, okay, I'm doing well enough, but to use that relative stability to realize that there's a more pervasive uneasiness that just comes with the territory of being human being. And I'm wondering what to do about that. And so I'm going to keep it in mind and I'm going to see what amplifies it and what allows it to diminish. What, what is this about? What is the cause of this? And, you know, the Buddha has a, an intellectual, conceptual answer. Attachment is the cause. Being identified with desire. It's not desire itself that's a problem. It's when the mind personalizes desire. It's no problem for me to want popcorn or you know, to want you to like me. But when I start to personalize that desire that you respect me or that you like me or you don't yawn too much or whatever, when I really make it a personal drama, then it gets really heavy. But the, just that simple desire to want to be liked, to not want to be disliked, that's just what that is. It's that comes with the territory of being human being. But when we add this, it gets amplified. And it can be a bit like a panic attack. It can get Anything can get overwhelming. Like I could get really obsessed right now, like, is he getting what I'm saying? Does he think I know what I'm talking, you know? And it can get huge, that sort of fear that I might be making a fool out of myself or something like that, right? And everything else falls away and it's just about that. And then I'll just try harder and harder to kind of make what I'm trying to say make sense to you, you know? And then it'll get weirder and weirder. <laughs> and then I'll get even more freaked out, like, oh, this is definitely not working. <laughs> and on and on. And, that's, and that's, that's what we're really more interested in is how is the anxiety getting bigger and how can it get quieter? Because so that, that allows wisdom to really get, well, what is the essential support for the suffering? What's allowing it to get bigger? What allows it to diminish? Because otherwise, it's not so much that they're suffering, but how is it coming to be? How is it being supported? How is it becoming stronger? Or how is it getting weaker? What prevents it from arising? What understanding, what way of being is, gives us immunity to that underlying anxiety. 
That's called deep spiritual learning. You know, when we're really learning about how suffering comes to be, how stress and anxiety anxiety comes to be, and how it ceases. Yeah, thanks for getting us started. Yeah, you want to go next? Pass the mic over here. Hi. What you said about um, non-attachment was really insightful for me because every time I always heard it, like, um, it seemed to bring about a certain, like, nihilism, which I know isn't the, the point of it, um, but it seems like you're right. If you kind of jump right into non-attachment, it does bring about a sort of subtle nihilism about things. Yeah, or not-so-subtle nihilism. Or not so subtle, yeah, exactly. Like, let's go rob someone. I mean, it obviously doesn't matter. Yeah, and um, you see that kind of... Like, even before it gets sort of extreme, like justifying, harming other people, in spiritual circles like Common Ground, you'll pick up at times in teachers and students and a kind of spiritual arrogance. And that's a more uh, mild version of this imbalance where someone is identified with the idea of non-attachment instead of a deeper realization of non-attachment. So one way we talk about that is non-attachment isn't something the person does because that's stinky, right? Like, I'm someone who's not attached, right? That, it's like I'm a Republican and I'm not attached. Or I'm a Dem- you know, it's sort of we, it's a label that we could just add on and it would be stinky in that way. Instead, non-attachment is something the mind begins to realize or the heart begins to realize like, oh, the heart, the mind is capable of functioning, navigating life without attachment. Whoa, that's amazing. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. We'd like to go next. It's time for maybe one or two more comments. What have you been learning or what questions come to mind? Yeah, you want to pass it back over here? Just take turns passing it. I know... Um, in in my practice, I uh, am aware. So I want to go back to to something that you said at the very beginning, and that was w- when we when we're settling in for a sit, and um, and we start to notice what's going on in our bodies. We start to notice what's going on in our minds, feelings, attachments, what whatever it is. And um, if we choose to notice, and how much do we choose to notice? And I, I know for myself, as I, as I sit, the longer I sit, um, there's what feels like an infinite well of conditioning that I could notice if I, if I go there, and and also there seems to be a, an infinite well of um suffering in the world um the media can take my mind and my heart to the other side of the world instantly at any time of day and i can be aware of suffering there and so i i um i ask myself how how much can i notice now or how how much can this heart bear now um and I, I guess I, I, I also live with um, a, a certain ongoing uncertainty that that I'm um, 
open to noticing enough. Yeah, and but we'll even detect like, you know, any kind of, it's sort of like, and a lot of you have heard me joke about like we should warn people because once the mind uh, understands how powerful being aware, this reflective, stable, reflective present moment awareness is, it's kind of hard to forget it. So like, oh no, I want to go back to my superficial unawareness. But it's sort of like awareness knows I want to go back to my superficial unawareness. And because awareness senses that, it senses it as, oh, that's not skillful. Because it's heavy. Delusion, like greed and anger, is heavy. Not wanting to know, which is like a definition of what ignorance is, or thinking that you do know, which is another kind of expression of ignorance, it's a heavy state of mind. Like, to whatever degree the mind, the heart's sensitive, it will feel heavy, like, oh, this is not the way. And it's a little bit like if we know we're holding a hot pan, we know we should let it go. So when we feel that heaviness, that contraction that comes with denial or distraction, it's like noticing we're holding a hot pan, like, oh, what am I doing? And one teacher that I has been really, uh, I really have appreciated. She's dead now. Tony Packer. Um, she called herself an awareness teacher. She was trained in the Zen Buddhist tradition at the uh, well-known Zen Center in Rochester, New York. She, and then, but later, it did felt a little confined by the sort of formality of the Zen tradition, and didn't even wa- really consider want to be considered a Buddhist teacher. She just wanted to be considered someone who taught awareness. And she had a wonderful center called Springwater in upstate New York. But one of the lines I really liked, and she has a couple of really good books you can track down, uh, Tony Packer. And uh, one of the lines she would use when she was teaching is, nobody consciously chooses numbness. Right? We won't, because to whatever degree the mind is sensitive, there is some present moment awareness. And we notice that habit to not want to be aware, to not want to know whether it's skillful or not, wisdom is going to notice that's heavy. That's a cause for suffering. That's not helping. right? And it's like noticing you're holding a hot pan. Letting go happens. So once we're sensitive, it's hard to go back to numbness. I mean, we will because of the momentum of that habit to be distracted or to be superficial. But generally, at some point, we'll notice the effect of being numb, being unaware, being distracted. And the flavor of that effect is, oh, that's heavy. That's not the way. This is not the way. It's just like, you know, if you've been, you know, being really greedy or really acting out in some unskillful way, and then you eventually wake up and realize what your life has been up to, you'll be both happy to realize, but clearly you're going to know, oh, that was not great thing to be doing these last couple of weeks. But you're happy to know that's not the way. I don't know if that relates to what you were talking about, Tom, but it's what came to mind. Thanks for sharing, and thanks everyone for your comments. We'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for a breath or two. 
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.